back, everybody. If you will, grab your Bibles wherever you are, and uh, let's start getting out our, our electronic Bibles or our paper Bibles. And I want you to open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be camping out there today and really trying to understand some of the things that Jesus is saying to the people of that day, but also the people of this day about what it really means, the cost we really have to pay, the life we really have to live to love God. What, what, what does it mean to love God? Does it mean piety? Does it mean holiness? Does it mean regulations? Does it mean you know dying on a cross? What does it mean to be a lover of God? To someone that just that looks at God and goes, anything you want, anything you need, everything I am belongs to you. What does it mean to love God? Now, Jesus, understand this, was not a politician. He didn't, he didn't give answers to questions to gain following. He gave answers to questions that imparted truth. Why? Because truth sets you free. If I tell you what you want to hear, and that's all I tell you, I may be your favorite guy, but I cannot lead you to truth. There's something about someone that will lie to you to get you to like them that is so utterly insincere to get the vote, to get the business, to, to get the friendship. It's so temporary. It's so worldly. It's so, it's so fragile. And Jesus just didn't market in these things. He spoke the truth always. Now, sometimes the truth was not what people wanted to hear. Sometimes the truth was difficult to hear, but Jesus never backed away from a tough question. He never backed away from telling people the truth. He didn't dodge these things. Sometimes he didn't answer questions directly, but he always answered questions. He never just kind of said, that's stupid, or you're stupid for asking that, or how dare you. He never reached for the, the trump cards uh, of, you know, the right bower. Boom, I won't answer that because you're an idiot. Um, he literally always led the listener to a conclusion that was true. And so um, in Matthew chapter 22, we find the Sadducees and the Pharisees trying to trip Jesus up. Think of it this way, that a, a, a rabbi that was not kind of ordained came out of nowhere and began to do miracles. He began to say things that people were relating to and following. Matter of fact, people were starting to leave the Pharisees, starting to leave the Sadducees and join Jesus as a disciple of Jesus. And so they came to him kind of like a kind of like a gunslinger would in the old west and said, you know, come on, quick straw, let's see what you got. And they began to test him. So the Sadducees tried to test Jesus and Jesus destroyed them. He, he told the truth and, and they were humiliated by their attempt to make him look humiliated. So the Pharisees come and this is what happens now in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. It says this, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, probably one that was kind of an upstart himself, kind of their representative, their, their smart guy, uh, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, in the law of Moses, in the Talmud of the Jews, the collection of, of God's spoken commandments, uh, there's 613 different regulations. They have to do with, oh, holy days and holidays and feasts and fasts and journeys and tithing and, and don't boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk and not wearing cotton and burlap at the same time and what to do in the physical world, the emotional world, the spiritual world, 613 different commands. And so he comes to him and says, hey, which one's the most important? Why? Why is that his question? If, if his goal is to trip Jesus up and kind of defame him or, or try to make him look silly, why would he ask that question? And this is kind of the simple question. It's the easy way to get to the answer is this. It's so subjective 
There are some that are like, man, you know what? You work too much. You need to take a Sabbath day's rest. And so that's kind of their, their commandment. The first and greatest commandment for you is, is this. Maybe sometimes somebody's dealing with, you know, health issues that are because of nutritional stuff. Well, no, the most important commandment is, you know, you shouldn't eat these foods and you, you should rest and you, should, you shouldn't partake in these sort of meats and things. They're unhealthy. Others may say, you know what? The most important thing is, is their most important thing. So whatever Jesus said, this Pharisee, this, this expert in the law can tear it apart and say, oh, really? If that's the most important, then you're actually belittling these other things that obviously are more important. So Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing the word, being the word, answers the question this way, and he doesn't get tripped up by it. Matthew 22, verse 38, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first. This is the, this is the premier commandment, and this is the greatest. This is the premier and the preeminent commandment. This is the first one. This is the most important one. You obey this one, and a lot of great things can happen. This is the most important one. Now, something that's a little bit of a historical background that might help you understand this, this in, a, in a greater dimension is that the, the biggest theological debates of Jesus' day came back to how to be in right relationship with God. Now, the two main schools of thought, one was that, that in order to have a loving relationship with God, you must be perfect according to the 613 laws of the Talmud. So if you're not perfect, then you have no right to, to move into a relational uh, walk with, with the Almighty. If you're not going to obey the simple things, then you can't have the profound experience of knowing God. Only holy people can approach God that way. But the other side was this. It, it wasn't be holy as I am holy, but they thought the greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And really what they're saying is something we continue to talk about and in some ways debate today, and that is how good do I have to be to be in a relationship with a perfect God? Like, like do, I, do I behave what I'm supposed to behave and then you know, believe what I'm supposed to believe so that I can belong and finally be at peace and at rest with God? Or do I belong? And from that belonging, this, this belief, this faith develops in someone that, that has welcomed me. And, and from that, this, this behavior comes out of this belonging and believing now becomes the fruit of my life. So that we still have this debate today, don't we? I mean, how could you say you love God, but you watch that R-rated movie or you're, you know, you're, your kids are running wild? How can you say you love God, but you, you do things that I wouldn't do because I consider them unholy? I don't think you really love God because you don't do these things that I value. You do these things that I, I devalue. And so people are still doing the same thing. The debate still rages today about is it that we have to be good enough to know God or is God good enough that he welcomes us in even though we're not perfect? And so Jesus answers the question along the lines of, you know, it's loving God. The most important commandment, the first and greatest is this. And I can hear this, this young Pharisee kind of upstart expert in the law go, aha. But Jesus then continues and he says this in verse 40. And the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law all the prophets, they, they, they hang on these two commandments. Without, without these hooks to, to, to hang the towel on, the towel just falls to the ground. If you really want to be concerned with what God is concerned with, what his priorities are, what his values are, if you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, everything else can fall into place. Everything else hangs on these two. But how are you going to obey the prophets? 
How are you going to obey the law about your neighbor, about, about rest, about nutrition, about forgiveness? If you, don't, if you don't hang everything on loving God, why do you do what you do? Because I love God. Why do you do what you do? Because I love my neighbor. Like all the rest of the weight of these commandments can hang on those two things. And so this, this teacher that's about to start debating him um, gets not just the answer to the question he asked, which, by the way, is extraordinarily rare. Jesus has asked about 300 direct questions, and he answers three of them directly. All the other times that Jesus has asked a question, he says, well, I'll answer that if you answer this question of mine first. He's exposing the roots of why the question wasn't a real question at all. It was just a trap, and I won't fall into that. So let me, let me play the same game. I'll give you a question, and if you answer this, I'll answer yours. They come back and say, we're not going to answer. He goes, but I won't answer you, because the answer to my question would expose the root of your question. That's why you refuse to ask it, right? But the other reason that Jesus doesn't answer your questions directly is Jesus doesn't hand out gold to people. He hands out shovels to people, and he tells them where to dig. So often when Jesus is asked a perfectly wonderful question, he answers people in the form of a parable, an analogy, a story. He, he doesn't say, here, here's the truth. So often he says, here's a shovel, and there's the truth. I'll give you a story that leads you to where the gold is. You dig it up, and because you have found it yourself, because you dug it out, because you went through the process of refining it and finding it and discovering it and enjoying it and celebrating it, it will be so much more to you if you don't just memorize the right answer, but you dig up the nuggets that I've buried for you all over this planet for you to find so that you can know the truth, because when you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? So this question, he, he answered directly, but he also answered a question that wasn't asked. The only time Jesus does this that I'm aware of is this time. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, but there's a second one, love your neighbor. This guy who is so beautifully wise to not just answer questions so people can just know the answer, but they have to know the answer because they dug it out. Why is it he not only answers the first question very plainly, very succinctly, but he also answers a question that was never asked? I believe it's this, and I, and I want you to hear my heart. I've been teaching about something, building a foundation for the rest of our talk today. I believe that Jesus answered the second question because it really, proof of the answer to the first question, loving God, is actually only found in loving what God loves. And I want to say this very carefully because I don't, I don't want to set up some new religious standardized test where we can, people are in or out based on what we see them loving. Just hear my heart for a second. If we begin by loving God, we can, we can then advance to the more difficult things beyond loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul. These are not perfect things. All of our mind, which still can be a rat's nest of activity and past hurts and memories and fears and just media and social media and anti-social media, right? Our, we are allowed to come before God to a throne that he sits on that he calls grace, the throne of grace. And we get to get into that place and just without being perfect, sit in the presence of the perfect one, being loved by him, and thereby the osmosis of that relationship, we begin to love him back. I, let me tell you something. You will become like the people that you hang out with that you love. I, there was a day in my life when I cared nothing about sports. I could care less. But what happened? I married a jock. 
<laughs> Dana Tharp was all about basketball. She was a four-year starter on the basketball high school team, was varsity all four years, averaged 32 points a game for four years. I mean, she was a stud. Now, I, she was an athlete. I, I played in the pet band because there were girls in the band. Like, that's, that was my, my investment in, in athletics. I was not an athlete. I was an athletic supporter. Uh, forgive me, but that's true. So what I ended up doing was, was marrying this girl that lived for this basketball tournament called the NCAA Men's Final Four National Championship. And the very first year that we were married, we're in Springfield, Missouri, going to Central Bible College. And this game is on. We've got a TV set that's about that big that you have to you have to click 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 click. No remote control. This is back in the day when you actually get up, click 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 click. And it was literally the screen was only that big. There's screens in cars now that are bigger and touch screen and have remotes than what we had in our apartment in Springfield. But I remember watching. We sat on this couch that I got for nineteen dollars. It was twenty dollars. But I got 5% off because I paid a senior citizen to, there was a friend of mine to come over and buy it from the Salvation Army thrift store. So it was only $19. We're sitting on this filthy couch watching this dirty little TV and her love for basketball. If you've never watched basketball with my wife, it, I could sell tickets to this. We, we should start a subscription website, dinawatchesbasketball.com. She screams, she freaks out, she's so mad at the coach and the player, and she's so excited about the win. I mean, it is fun to watch her watch college basketball. And because of my relationship with her, because of her love for it, what's funny is I have become as big a fan, not as vocal a fan, because I don't understand the game as much as she does. I don't get as frustrated because I don't, I don't know everything. <clears throat> but when she, <laughs> when she watches and I watch her and we watch it, it is such a great time. Last Christmas, my Christmas gift to her was uh, tickets to the Final Four tournament, the championship game in Minneapolis, uh, and, and then it, you know, it didn't happen. But, but I, that, that was like this gift because I know she loves it. Now, here, what I'm trying to say is this. Because of my relationship with Dina Wiegand, I have formed a relationship with college basketball. Let me say this. Because of your loving relationship with Jesus Christ, you will begin a loving relationship with a lot of things that Jesus loves. Now, when Jesus answers the question, love God with your heart, soul, and mind, and oh, another one, love your neighbor as yourself, what I believe he's saying is this, the proof of obedience to the first commandment is only found in the evidence of the second commandment. Because you can say, you know, how, how would I know if someone loves God? How would I know if I love God? How do I know if my children love God? How do I know if my parents love God? How do I know if my church loves God? How do I know? I mean, is it, is it the volume of the music? Is it the, the, the piety of the rules? Is it how do I know if we love God? And the answer is we'll find ourselves loving what God loves. Now, today, I, I want you to do a little bit of kind of self-analysis. I want you to look inside of yourself. I want you to look at the last three months and maybe some things you said or thought or did, you know, the pressure, the, the weight of this season. But I want you to really begin to ask yourself, is, is the demonstration of me loving God found in the evidence of me loving God? people, if me loving what God loves, right? So most people are going to look at, do you love God by looking at a couple things? Like the first thing is holiness. They're going to look at it and say, you know, does he, does he uh, smoke or chew or run with girls that do? What's his language? What entertainment does he have? Where does he spend his money? Where does he spend his time? Where does, who are her friends and are her friends? You know what I mean? And this, this happened in the day of Jesus, but I want you to remember this, that, that the, the Pharisees, I mean, the word Pharisee means separated ones, they, they were not giving in to the, the influence of Romans or Greek culture. They were, they were the holy ones, the separated ones. And when Jesus meets them, he doesn't say, hey, congratulations, guys. You, all 613 laws of the Talmud have been, he doesn't. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. 
And what's inside of you is not life, but the bones of dead men. Well, they obeyed the Sabbath. They, they tithed from the weeds that grew in the ditch in front of their house. They, they, they were very careful not to, not to become, uh, you know, polluted by the ungodly Gentiles around them. I mean, they were holy. And Jesus said, you're really not. The, on the outside, there's this appearance of something wonderful, but you and I both know that the inside, it's all an act. The number one thing that Jesus called Pharisees was hypocrite. And, and hypocrite is the word hypocrites, which is a synonym for the word actor. You are, when you walk out of your home, you're on a stage Look how holy I am. Look what I do. Look what I don't do. Look how holy I am. Listen, if we look at people and we say they must be close to God because, because of their holiness, we could be very easily led astray. Um, and if you think that you're close to God because you don't smoke anymore or chew anymore or run with girls that do anymore, maybe we should find a better test. So people say, what about, what about worship? Well, that's the Pharisees we talked about. Let's talk about the Sadducees. Another group of, of believers in, in the one true God who exercised that belief um, were called the Sadducees. They were the ones that were over the temple worship. In other words, six days a week they stood between the nation of Israel and a, and a holy God and made sacrifices on behalf of the people to the Lord. I mean, they, they, well, they're steady in worship. They, they never miss a Sunday. They always raise their hand. They're in the altar. They, their radio station is always tuned to a Christian radio station or whatever it is. Listen to me. Please hear me. I'm, I'm not saying any of this is bad. I'm not saying the holiness of, 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 you know, of, of religion is wrong. I'm not saying that worship is wrong, but I do want to expose to you that they worship six days a week from sunup to sundown before the God of Israel, and we're not right with God. They, they came to test Jesus, the Son of God. They didn't know who he was because they, they'd focused on something that, that was an attribute of God, but they missed God. It'd be like us today reading the Bible and memorizing it, but not living it in our homes and in our hearts and in our lives. So how would, how would we know if somebody loves God? How do you know if you love God? How do you know if I love God? How do we know if we as a church or the church is, is loving God, obeying the first and greatest commandment? I think it starts with something like this. I think those who love the Lord will love what he loves, and God loves people. I mean, the first three chapters of the, the book of, uh, of Genesis, the first three chapters of the Bible, and the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, the last three chapters of the Bible, is talking about the beginning of all things, putting things in order, what happened, what went wrong. Revelation, the last three chapters, how God's setting it right, how eternity begins, and, and uh, all, this, all this stuff. But every chapter in between these three chapters is all relational, and most of it has to do with God protecting people, loving people, redeeming people, teaching people, correcting people. So while the Old Testament has a lot of blood in it, yeah, it does, but, but every time there was blood, it was because God, God saw something so rotten that couldn't be redeemed. And if my arm was rotten, it was injured, and it was gangrene, the most, even as painful as it would be, the only thing you can do to save me is to cut this off. That, that explains all of the blood of the battles of the Old Testament. It wasn't that God hated Philistines. It's that there wasn't a single Philistine that would put their faith in him that, through which he could redeem all, all of the Philistines. It isn't that Sodom and Gomorrah was judged because of the sin of just homosexuality. It's because he couldn't find somebody in Sodom and Gomorrah through which he could redeem all of Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, when, when it can't be saved, it can't be allowed to spread. And so in the Old Testament, God sometimes would be very harsh, not because he hates anybody, but because he loves that which, that which um, can be saved. He doesn't, he doesn't judge Pharaoh because he hates Pharaoh. 
He displays his power through a disobedient, hard-hearted Pharaoh because through that, that display of power, his glory is revealed to nations so that we today can see how beautiful, how powerful he is. Yes, it's extraordinarily sad, and I'm sure the heart of God is broken for men like Pharaoh, like Hitler, like Stalin. I'm, I'm serious. Because God loves people so much, I'm sure his heart is broken every time someone misses his love and his grace and his mercy. But don't mistake the fact that the judgment of God is somehow God's anger being displayed. If God was truly an angry God, we wouldn't be having this conversation. God's a loving God. He only cuts off that which cannot be redeemed. So in this thing, you understand, God wants us, God wants you, God wants me to love our neighbor. Our neighbors are the people we meet as we're walking down the street. They're the people that we meet each day. Those of you that are Sesame Street fans will remember that song, right? Who are the people in your neighborhood? It's the person at the gas station. It's the person at Starbucks. It's the person at Tim Hortons. It's the person at McDonald's. There's a lot of coffee in this illustration. <laughs> but it's the people we, we, we encounter. We work next to them. We live next to them. It's the people that, that we can reach, we can touch. And he says, listen, you've got to love them. Those who love God will love their neighbor. How do I know if you love God? Well, I go to church, well, I worship, well, I tithe, well, I don't smoke, chew, or run with girls that do. But if you're a jerk to your neighbor, I have a right to question, not the fruit of your self-righteousness, but the fruit of your motivation. When you love God, you'll begin to love what he loves. If he loves NCAA basketball, you'll find yourself cheering for a favorite team of yours too. If he loves your neighbor, which he does, you will find yourself loving him. It takes love, guys. And, and let me say this. Well, I will love my neighbors that are lovable. But we all know that we have neighbors, people we encounter on a regular basis that are trying not to be lovable. This is the woman at the well that wants to make Jesus feel stupid and, and, and like he's, a, he's a, a homophobe and a, and a racist and a bigot and a sexist. And a, you know what I mean? And Jesus just gets through all of that. Why? Not because he, these questions aren't insulting. It's because he's, he's loving her. He's not trying to judge her and find something to argue about. He's trying to find one point from which he'll allow his love to enter so that he can redeem her. And he wins by loving her. The Bible says that we should be patient with one another. The Bible says we should actually tolerate. We should forbear we should put up with, we should be long-suffering with, we should suffer with people. <laughs> and I'm telling you, if you want to be involved in people's lives, there has to be a grace that comes from the presence of God that is now extended to others. You know why you get to forgive people? Because you understand the love of God forgiving you. You know why you're patient with people? Because you're in a relationship with a God who's being patient with you. Do you see this? So how do we know if, if you love God, I love God? There's going to be, please hear me, there's going to be a love for our neighbor. You're gonna wanna help when there's a crisis. You're gonna wanna buy all the toilet paper you can, but then you're gonna knock on all your neighbor's doors and hand them a roll and say, I love you, God bless you, right? When you speak, you're gonna speak for their good, even if truth hurts or affirmation, it, it just, it's real, you are going to do everything you do because of this loving relationship with God. You're now going to be loving towards people. Um, churches are starting to reopen, and I've, I've shared a few stories, but just last night I watched a heartbreaking broadcast of some friends of Dina and I. Uh, they, they, they pastor a fabulous church, a church that has inspired this church on, on just multiple occasions. Many of our young people have gone to serve there and be trained there, and, and, and they're just they're just changed by being a part of this. He and his wife from their kitchen got on the other night and they just shared with the church and said, we're divided. 
There, there's those that are mad because we're not having church right now. There's those who are, are mad because we're getting ready to open the church again. There's those who just are tired of the debate. Like, like we're supposed to be leading one church in eight locations, but now we have like three congregations that are all mad at each other. And you said terrible things to us. You said terrible things to each other. You've, you just, and can I just, and this is what he said. I love this. This is, this, is how, this is loving God, becoming loving people. This is what he said. He said, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, no matter what you said to tear this place apart, to take the life's work, that which I'll present to my God on my day of judgment and say, this is what I gave my life to. And you walked in and put your muddy boots all over the coffee table that you didn't even pay for. And you made a mess that I had to clean up. This is what I want you to know. And I thought, here it goes, here it comes, here it comes, get ready, get ready. He said, there is amnesty in the heart of God. And there is amnesty in my heart. I don't care what you said about me. I look forward to seeing you whenever you're ready to walk back through those doors. And I will hug your neck and will act like it never happened because mercy has covered my sins. My mercy that, that God has given me now covers yours. Can't wait to see you. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? That cost that man something to do that and to say that. But what a, what a beautiful gesture. Because God has loved me without condition, I love you. Without performance issues being measured to see if you're worthy of my love or unworthy of my love. You know, the second thing is this. If you love God, you're gonna find that you love the world. I don't mean love the spirit of the world or the, the flesh or the carnal part, but I mean our neighbor is the person we're going to meet, but in the world there's people we're never going to meet. Isn't it interesting that people who, who uh, go on missions trips come back changed? Their, their world has expanded. Their, their life is larger. Their, their circle of love has, has enlarged to the people of Cuba or Oaxaca or Africa or Italy or you know, Flint, Detroit, Cadillac, the places we've been on mission trips to in the last few years. It's funny, they come back and go, oh, I just, we had people that actually went on the mission trip to Cadillac and then moved up there. I, we just want to be a part of this. Why? Because their circle of love grew beyond just you know, Fenton, the Freedom Center, to Cadillac, and they said, we want to be a part of this young pastor's journey and his family. We believe in their vision. Like, that's, that's what happens. You, you begin to expand, not just to your neighbor, but to the world. These are our missionaries. These are our kids that we feed in Haiti. Now, 880,000 meals to kids in Haiti. These are our, our, our pastors in, uh, in Thailand that we've participated with. These are the people that we've, we've participated with that are, are serving people in China today. And these are the people that are in the Caribbean that we just had the opportunity to, to meet with the other day and teach and inspire and love and pray for. These are all over the world. Like many of these people, I will never meet the people that they're reaching, but we have a heart for the world. Now listen, how do I know if I love God? I think the proof is found in loving your neighbor, but if it stops there, I would say there's room for your lover to be expressed in greater ways. You begin to love the people you're never gonna meet. They'll never be able to say thank you. They'll never be able to pay you back. They don't even know you're praying for them, but you find yourself broken for people that are having a hard thing in India, for people that are going through a drought in Africa, for people that are suffering from this disease in the tip of South America, the northern edge there, where there's just, there's no help. The Wandani tribes people in Brazil that are suffering with this COVID thing. Like we just, you're like, I just, I wish I could be there right now to help them. What can I do to help? Who's helping them? How do I help them help them? When you start loving the world, you realize that that's not natural. That's the fruit of the supernatural. That's, that's me loving basketball because I love Dina. That's you loving the world because God so loves the world that he'd do anything to save them. And when you begin to do things to help, to save, to serve, to feed, to comfort, to heal, you will find yourself as someone who is known as someone who, who loves God. Lastly, is this. I think you're gonna love the church. 
Now, I want to be careful. I don't mean to say you'll love Freedom Center Church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you love wherever people have gathered in his name as the redeemed. You'll love that. You'll find yourself defending it. Uh, sometimes we love the church. We're passionate about it. And we say things because we're angry, because we're passionate, because we're, you know what I mean? But, but you'll, you'll find yourself just being a blessing to the church. You'll find yourself not, not caring what name is over the door, not caring if the, the person's name is Jim or Pastor Jim or Father Jim or Deacon Jim or Bishop Jim or Apostle Prophet Evangelist with Signs and Fire following Jim. You just find yourself loving people that love God and wanting to be a part of that. How do you know if you love God? You'll love his church. The, the, not this, but the church. You'll say the Baptists are my brethren and, and those who believe at St. John's are my brethren and those who believe at, at you know, First Nazarene are my brethren and those who, you know what I mean? You, we begin to look for ways to what we agree on, to connect, not what we disagree on so we can just dismiss. You find yourself being a doctrinal snob. What's the difference between you and one of these guys arguing with Jesus about doctrine? We, we are called to be one body standing with one spirit, one faith, one baptism. That's what we are called to, unity. And so I just encourage you to understand this. Those who love God, they're gonna love people. They're gonna love their neighbor. They're gonna love the world, and they're gonna love what God means when he says the church. Galatians chapter five, verses 20 and 21, tells us what not loving God leads to, and, and we have to be extraordinarily careful. It's really weird because in, in verse 20, it talks about things like witchcraft, idolatry, I mean, just gross, immoral sins. And, and in the latter parts of verse 21, it says orgies and drunkenness and sexual debauchery. Like, like, but isn't it interesting that sandwiched between witchcraft and orgies, there's this part, this part that says factions and divisions and dissensions. And, and I think one of the reasons Paul hides in Galatian between major gross sins, these things that are far more common among everybody, among believers, among neighborhoods. Among, it, listen, I have never once seen a church destroyed by anything but the people in it. I want you to think about that. I've never once seen the body of Christ destroyed by anything. No government, no demon, witchcraft, nope. Nope, sexual immorality, nope, nope. I've never seen it destroyed by anything except the people who are part of it, destroying it with their own mouths, with their own hands, with their own unforgiveness, with their own biases, with their own divisions, factions, and dissensions. And so I am closing out our time today just simply once again. As I'm speaking to you here via this medium, I'm also speaking out on a ball field right now to people that have gathered out there in their cars and I'll say the same thing out there that I'm saying to you right now we are one body one faith one spirit one baptism we are here for the purpose of displaying our love for God our love for our neighbor our love for people our love for the world our love for the church that Jesus died to save and to create if you think about it this way, guys, it would be hard to believe, wouldn't it, that somebody loves the Lord when they don't love their neighbor, when, when, they, when they don't care about the world, when they don't care about the redeemed of the Lord, right? I, I mean, just, this is just, you can see this, right? How do I know if I love God? How do I know if I don't love God? Is it my church attendance? Is it whether I quit smoking or not? Is it whether I, I, I canceled HBO? 
I put a filter on my phone. I, I, I stop beating my kids. Like, how, how would I know if I'm loving God? It's simple. You, you'll see in your life a love for people, a love for your neighbor, the people that you meet. You'll, you'll love, you'll care about more than just me and mine and ours. You'll start to look to, to fields that are white into harvest and you'll begin to invest in them with your life, with prayer, with resource, with going there and meeting them and hugging their necks and, and meeting their needs. You'll, you'll find your world get larger as the love of God inside of you gets larger. And lastly, you'll find yourself looking at the church not as my team against all the other teams, but you'll look at the church as the family of God, whether it's a church of thousands in a stadium or it's a church of uh, three in a family room. You'll look at it and you'll say, I love that. How can I help that? How can I support that? How can I participate in that? I want to encourage you in the closing moments of this that you may be here today saying, man, I, I don't know if I love God. I, I, I mean, I want to. I would just say this. We only receive the love that we think we deserve. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I, I, I don't know how to love God. There's just so much between he and I right now. How would I resolve that? Listen to me. Please hear me. You resolve it by, by knowing that he's bigger than your sin. You resolve that by knowing his love for you is greater than any past disobedience that occurred in your life. If, if, if God loves the world so much that he gave his son to die for you, how much more will he send his son to you now? How much more will the Holy Spirit invade your heart, your life, your mind right now? If you cannot love God because you're unworthy, let's get rid of the unworthy part because that's what Jesus came and lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, and, and had a victorious resurrection from the grave so that you today, here, now, could be right with God. Here, now, right with God. If you're not right with God, it's, it's a simple prayer. It's a simple ask. If you owed me $100 and I came to you to collect and you didn't have it, what do you have to do? If you, if you, I, just, I just need mercy. Jim, would you, I'm sorry, I don't have it. I have no way to get it. I'm sorry. And I say, hey, it's cool. I love you. This isn't about money. This isn't about what you pay me or don't pay me. This is about you. I value you more than the $100 bill. Same thing. God values you more than the debt that you owe him because of an unrighteous life. If you want to be right with God, then this is what you do. Say this with me right now. Jesus, I want to be right with you. And so I, I ask, forgive me. Pay my debt. Remove everything that stands between the heart of the Father and my heart. Right here, right now, I ask for a clean slate, a fresh start, and a new life. I receive it by faith. I just trust you. <laughs> and I receive through that trust salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask yourself the question, do you love God? What's the evidence? If I, were to, if I were to accuse you of loving God in a court of law, is there enough evidence to convict you? If not, let's, let's give up all these little sidetracks that dilute your love and pollute your life. Let's run this thing. Let, let's, let's move with everything we have, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, believing that as we do, God is going to make your world larger Fill it with greater things. Let's stop the debate that was going on 2,000 years ago. Am I qualified to love God? Am I qualified to, yeah, he's not because she doesn't and he does. Like, let's just, let's come to him humbly, accepting mercy, accepting love. And when we belong, guys, we're gonna believe. When we believe, we're gonna behave. Jesus settled it that day. 
First we belong, then we believe. And the fruit of the belonging and believing is the change of behavior. Let us not measure people in any other way but the way that God measures them. I love you guys. God bless you. Um, Next Sunday, we'll be doing this again, but we'll also be on the ball field at 9 o'clock. Father, bless my friends, and we have a wonderful, beautiful, prosperous day in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. See you soon. Hello, Freedom Center Church. Something has happened over the last month, and we are super excited about it, and that is that our people have been graduating. Our eighth graders have been graduating to go to high school. Our seniors in high school have been graduating to hopefully take that next step in life. And our seniors in college have been graduating and now are going into the real world. We just wanted to honor you guys some way during this time, so we want to say congratulations to all of our graduates, and we have a special guest speaker for you guys, Desi Maynard. What's up, graduating class of 2020? This is Desi with Maynard Leadership, and I'm a former teacher and coach, and I'm here today to say congratulations, you made it. But that's kind of the beginning, and here's how that starts. When I graduated from high school, a mentor of mine, really close confidant, handed me a book, and I was like, oh, cool, what's this book? What's in here? And I opened it, and it was blank. A blank, and I'm like, what am I gonna do with this blank book? And he said, write your story. And man, I kind of was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then I started thinking about that that night, and I thought, man, I got to ask him another question. Called him up. I said, what do you mean? And he said, life is just beginning. It is now the start. And I'm like, the start? But I've already done all this, right? No, it is now time to write your story. It is up to you. You can dream. You can have huge goals. It is 100% up to you what you write down in that story of your life. It is up to you. And I'm so looking forward to those stories to be able to read, to be able to watch you guys grow, especially here at Freedom Center Church. It's just so exciting. I'm so happy for you all. Write your story. Desi with Manor Leadership. Thank you, Desi, for that special graduation message for all of our graduating people here. And now we would like to take some time to honor our graduating class of 2020. Graduating from college, we have Savannah Baker. Graduating from high school, we have Lauren Brennan. Graduating from high school, we have Hannah Creech. Graduating from high school, we have Elijah Dawson. Graduating from college, we have Alexis Koenig-Densmore. Graduating from high school, we have Liberty Desjardins. Graduating from high school, we have Riley Dickerson. Graduating from high school, we have Allison Hathaway. Graduating from high school, we have Brendan Hughes. Graduating from high school, we have Lily Cromer. Graduating from high school, we have Reagan Ling. 
Graduating from eighth grade, we have Adriana Lucio. Graduating from high school, we have Jaden Paver. Graduating from high school, we have Ali Risa. Graduating from middle school, we have Sophia Risa. Graduating from college, we have Tessa Rue. Graduating from high school, we have David Smith. Graduating from middle school, we have Alexander Zatelli. That's it. That's all we have for you today. Congratulations, class of 2020, on your graduation. We look forward to seeing all the stories that you write throughout the rest of your life. We look forward to sending you, not just having you leave, but sending you out into the world to see all the amazing accomplishments that you guys can have. Congratulations, 2020, on all of your accomplishments, and we look forward to seeing your future. Thank you.